What is the biblical view of spiritual and cultural issues, of the roles of men and women and marriage? And what does the Bible say about political issues and world leaders who threaten the peace of the Middle East and the security of the United States? Today is Ask a Theologian Anything Day. This is Jerry Johnson Live from Criswell College. Join us as we look at today's news from the Christian worldview for Christ and culture. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. I have a dream. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Your host is Dr. Jerry Johnson, president of Criswell College and Criswell Communications. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, here's today's host, Mark Overstreet. Good afternoon, listeners. This is Mark Overstreet standing in for Jerry Johnson today on Jerry Johnson Live. It's Friday afternoon, and it's 5 o'clock hour. You are on the way home, probably. And as you're on the way home, you're thinking Bible, theology, spiritual issues, cultural issues. You're thinking about men and women and the relationship that we have together here on uh, this planet. And uh, as you heard from the introduction today, we're thinking about uh, all of these issues from a biblical perspective. And today I've got in the studio with me Dr. Denny Burke. Denny Burke's a professor here at Criswell College in Dallas, Texas. He's a minister. He's a preacher. He's a scholar. He's also a good friend of mine. And uh, Denny, I just want to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being here. Mark, thank you for inviting me to be on. And I just want to know, when you're going home, are those the things that you're thinking about when you're in your car? <laughs> Most of the time, actually. <laughs> you're, uh, you may be ahead of me then. I'm, uh, I'm I've got my to-do list of all the things uh, that my three boys uh, want me to do just as soon as I get my bag uh, down on the floor when I'm walking through the door. So, Denny, one of the things I want to open up with today uh, is, first of all, I want to invite all of our callers as you're driving home, you're sitting in your living room listening to the talk show, you're thinking, uh, how on earth uh, are we to live a better biblical Christian life? I want you to get uh, pick up the phone and call us, 800-881-9270. We will take any question, and we will try to answer it from a biblical perspective. Uh, Denny Burke is a theologian. Uh, he's a New Testament scholar. He might whip out the Greek New Testament on you. Uh, 800-881-9270. Denny, one of the biggest things that I think uh, that is affecting both the world in the West, also uh, in the church today, and especially among evangelicals, is a biblical view of men and women, how it's radically transformed just over the last 40 or 50 years uh, here, uh, specifically in this country and in the Western uh, civilization. And this week, uh, just this week, in, among evangelicals, there have uh, been some divided discussions. Uh, one, uh, in particular, an opinion uh, delivered down from a former professor at a uh, conservative evangelical university, 
Now he's moved uh, to a, a broadly moderate or liberal uh, university, and his perspective uh, is different than the one uh, that you, uh, who serves as the editor for the journal for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, uh, would espouse. Can you just kind of walk us through that in a few seconds? You mean what my view is? Yes. Oh, well, my view is um, that the Lord has set up and established uh, distinct roles for men and women in the church and in the home. And, uh, you know, I don't think that the Bible teaches that men and women are just interchangeable. Um, I think God has made us male and female and that we have complementary traits, not interchangeable traits. And um, so the Lord has a, a purpose for each of the sexes. Sometimes the theologians call this complementarianism because... Uh, from the very beginning, God created them male and female, and uh, so there's different roles that God has defined for men and women. That radically affects how you live in the home, um, if if you're married, and of course how things are set up within the church as well. And uh, I think the article you're referring to is the one by da- David Gushy, who uh, had written in the Associated Baptist Press about, um, he, he's against the view that uh, men and women have distinct roles He's what we call an egalitarian, mm-hmm. which means that um, men and women are equal in every respect and sort of um, interchangeable in their roles in the in the church and the home. And um, depending on how God is called, um, the woman, for instance, she could be a pastor or whatever. I would argue against that. But anyway, he argues that um, the people who hold my view, sort of the more traditional male headship view, um, he argues that you know people who believe that don't, don't actually live up to that. And because they don't actually live up to that ideal of male headship or the the male leading in the home, the husband leading the home, because they don't live up to that, therefore it must be wrong. Um, It's not – can't be true because people don't live up to it. Okay, so let me ask you one question uh, because I want to flesh this out just a little bit. Uh, Keeping complementarians true to Scripture was the subtitle of his opinion piece. And one of the things that he's attacking people who have this, uh, which has broadly uh, been recognized for thousands of years in the Christian church, what an egalitarian may say, well, look, that's because chauvinism dominated or because patriarchalism dominated both in a biblical time and in subsequent times. How on earth are we to respond to somebody who says, well, because uh, because you guys don't live up to a proper view or treating women the right way, therefore your view is wrong? You had a metaphor or an analogy that you used, I think, today or this week in responding to that. Could you just share that with the listeners? Because I felt like yeah, it was very effective. Yeah, I'll, I'll share that. And we should probably remind everyone, if you do have a question or comment, please give us a call at 1-800-881-9270, one 800 Eighty-one We're talking about gender roles at the moment, but actually the lines are open to get questions from anybody uh, on any topic. So uh, go ahead and call in on that. We'd love to hear from you at 1-800-881-9270. And, um, yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that some, um, uh, you know, that men and women are perfect right. and that people don't abuse their God-ordained roles. And, of course, you know, you can, you know, I don't have to convince anyone that, you know, it's true that sometimes men are abusive, sometimes men are passive. Uh, same thing with women. And um, s- some people would argue that because sometimes those roles are uh, abused, therefore God does, you know, we shouldn't, um, you know, hold to the view that the, that a man leads his home and that God intends for pastors and uh, church leaders to be uh, qualified male leaders. 
They think that because those roles are sometimes abused that we shouldn't hold to those. And I would just argue that you can't really say uh, – it, it doesn't really work out to say just because someone abuses a principle that therefore the principle itself is wrong. It'd be like saying you know, just because the laws of the land, civil laws, are broken by people who otherwise think those laws are just, therefore – the hypocrisy of the lawbreakers invalidates the laws. You know, just because somebody breaks the laws doesn't make the laws unjust. Because just because a lot of men are speeding, therefore the fifty-five mile an hour speed limit is unjust. Yeah, that that's that's a you know that's absurd. Okay, okay. Well, uh, I, as as we're thinking about these kinds of things, how can we how can we practically apply this type of uh, this type of application in our churches and in our homes in a way uh, that doesn't seem abusive. It is going to be countercultural, but Christians have always been called to be countercultural. I just want to uh, think uh, very practically one or two things that maybe uh, the mother who's listening and, and thinking about her biblical role as mother and as wife, and maybe uh, the husband who's driving home and thinking, well, how can I better lead my family uh, in a way that's con- uh, commensurate with Christ's command in Scripture. Yeah, well, when you think about the family, I think you're looking at essentially um, a set of temptations for both wife and husband. You know, for the husband, there's the temptation to be on one end of the spectrum abusive and to take advantage of his leadership role in such a way that he actually mistreats verbally or otherwise his wife and, and maybe even the children. And so there's the, the abusive end of the spectrum that you could um, fall off of. And then the other sp- end of the spectrum, and frankly, a lot of men really do this, um, they sort of, they're just sort of passive when it comes to their families. And, um, you know, they're real excited about work, put a lot of time and hard work into their profession. But when it comes to putting time and work into their families, they don't do it. They come home, they prop up themselves in the lazy boy, turn on the television, and they check out. And their brain goes to tapioca for the next five hours because it's been working so hard for, you know, the whole day. And their family just gets the worst part of them. And so, you know, you add up years of passivity like that yeah. with respect to your family. It's it's a problem. And so, um, but the biblical role of men is to lead your family in righteousness. That's right. That's um, right. You know, the man's role is to know his wife's heart, to know her her wants and needs, to mm-hmm. take care of those needs, not just bringing home the bacon. That's right. Um, He's been working for the man all day, and, and Paul, uh, or Jesus, is commanding these men, you give yourself to your wife as Christ gave himself for the church. Don't give yourself to the man all day. Don't give yourself to profiteering or give yourself to your retirement fund or your vacation. Give yourself to your wife and give yourself to your family because this is what God wants. Denny, we've got uh, we've got to jump out of this and move over. We've got uh, lots of callers coming in here. They've got questions uh, for the theologians today. If you're listening and you want to get in on this, 800-881-9270. That's 1-800-881-9270. This is Mark Overstreet in for Jerry Johnson on Jerry Johnson Live. We've got Jose calling in. Jose, you're calling from Dallas. Give us a question. Yes. Uh, I've been, uh, well, before I became a, a Christian, I went to different churches, you know, trying to seek in the truth. And what I noticed is that uh, some churches practice a lot this uh speaking in tongues and some done some of them are against it some are not and some uh, i think they they just go over the over the line on that stuff 
my question is, is that biblical or is not biblical? I, I hear you in the radio. I hear you on the radio. Thank you. Thanks, well, thanks, thanks, Jose. Denny, you're in the New Testament zone. Uh, you, you know all about tongues. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, he asked if tongues are biblical, and um, you know, the short answer is yes, they are. Um, the, the, the part that's more difficult to answer is, is how does the biblical gift of tongues relate to what we as Christians in the 21st century ought to be doing as a regular part of our worship practices? Part of the, you know, Mark, I don't know where you are on this. You and I may have two different views on this for all I know. Uh, we'd probably come out on the, in terms of practice at the same place, but in terms of our view of uh, view on tongues, I'm not sure if, if we're on the same page, but, you know, my view of tongues biblically in the book of Acts, you've only, you've only got two really, two places in the Bible where tongues are mentioned. And sh- share those real quick yeah, for our it's listeners. In the, it's in the book of Acts and right. then in the in book of 1 Corinthians. That's right. So you got, uh, what, three or four different places in the book of Acts where tongues are mentioned. And in First Corinthians chapters twelve through fourteen, and uh, you know, of course, in in Corinth they were having problems Big with problems. practice of of the gift of tongues, and they were it was sort of a gift that was being exalted, and you were sort of super spiritual if you could speak in tongues, and uh, the Apostle Paul's having to sort of reprove their use of of tongues, but in Acts, you know, I think the first time uh, tongues really show up is right after Jesus ascends. And the Holy Spirit descends on the apostles there at the day of Pentecost. Mm-hmm. And it says that the Holy Spirit uh, enables all these people to speak in other tongues. And the, there were people who were gathered in Jerusalem when this happened. They were from all over uh, different parts of the Roman Empire. They meaning were Jews. They, meaning they speak different languages. They spoke different languages. They didn't speak the languages that these apostles were preaching in. That's exactly right. And so, uh, And so each of them were saying we could hear... We could hear them speaking of, quote, the mighty deeds of the, of the Lord in our own tongues. And so what was happening there at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, to me, is pretty clear. Some people disagree with me, and so I don't know where you are on this, but for me it's pretty clear that the tongues at, at Pentecost were known human language. The Lord gave people the supernatural ability to speak in natural languages so that people could speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord. It was for the purposes of the gospel. And so that informs my whole interpretation of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 as well. All right. Well, Denny, thanks for that uh, response to this very important question. Uh, Well, we've got all of the lamps lit, folks, and it's Friday night. You're driving home from the office, or maybe you're driving out to a Friday night football game. This is Mark Overstreet in for Jerry Johnson on Jerry Johnson Live. We're taking your questions. You call us. When we come back from the break, we'll take more calls. It's Ask a Theologian Anything Day, 800-881-9270. We'll see you back. If you're looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. 
Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture and the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with this word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Criswell College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's today's host, Mark Overstreet. Good afternoon. This is Mark Overstreet sitting in for Jerry Johnson on Jerry Johnson Live today. It's Friday afternoon, and uh, we've got callers holding on the way. It's Ask a Theologian Anything Day, 800 881 9270 if you're wanting to get in on this 800-881-9270 you call and ask any question about the bible life theology we'll try our best to give you a biblical answer for this denny uh, right as we were going to break jose asked a great question about tongues you talked about the biblical timing but one thing uh, that i realized while we were breaking was that uh, you didn't talk about a contemporary application to that do people talk in tongues today how do we understand that give us an answer real quick well, my answer to the question is that the biblical gift of tongues uh, is the abil- supernatural ability by the Spirit to speak in natural human language for the purpose of proclamation. And um, it, when, the, when the Lord inspires that gift, um, it's for, so that there could be knowledge. And that's what was happening in the book of Acts. And uh, I would argue that most of what we see today in, uh, in tongue speaking is not that. Okay. Uh, that's not what's happening in the book of Acts. And so um, at, at the very least, I would say is that if a church is doing this, they need to do it according to the instructions that Paul sets forth. And I'm, I'm personally uh, not one who sees that as a gift, like a, an, an ecstatic utterance uh-huh. that, of, of a language that doesn't mean anything. Okay. I don't think that's what the Bible's teaching at all. But um, a, lot of the, a lot of the churches that practice this, not all of them, I don't want to say all of them, but a, a lot of the ones, especially some that you see on TV, there is no interpretation. And, of course, Paul says that there has to be an interpretation. Okay. Well, that's a uh, great response to that question. Uh, we've got uh, folks waiting on the line, so I want to go to Bill next. Bill, you've called in. You've got a question. Go ahead, Bill. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. A uh, quick question. Uh, you mentioned earlier about the gender issue. Yes. And I, I was just curious, what is your take on the Scripture that says that in Christ there is no male or female? That's a, uh, or that, Jew or Gentile, or, and I mean, how does the, if God doesn't see us as male or female, then why should we see ourselves that way? Well, that's a fantastic question, Bill, and uh, rightly asked. I think the right way to ask a question is, is to say, how does God view us? And then once we understand how God views us, let's look at Scripture. Let's look at God's Word. Well, I think that, first of all, Denny, the number one thing we can do is go straight to Genesis 1 and ask ourselves about what God is doing in creation. How does he communicate what he did in, uh, in that garden? And he says male and female. He created them. Now, Bill's specific question is about Galatians 3, I think. He's referencing Galatians, Galatians 3.28. 3, and uh, you owe me a Coke. Uh, Galatians 3.28 says, Neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. Now, Paul is saying here in this text to the Galatians that 
And he's speaking to a crowd that's filled with Jews and Greeks, filled with slaves and free people, filled with males and females. And he says, you are all one in Christ Jesus. But then the context, uh, understanding properly the context is going to be critical here. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Denny, can you give us a, a, a quick encapsulation about what this means for us in terms of this gender issue and then just biblically today? Yeah, sure. In Galatians 3.28, Paul says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And as far as the blessings of redemption are concerned, mm-hmm. the blessings of redemption are applied equally to all different kinds of people, male, female, Slave and free and all those things that Paul listed there, um, they're applied equally. And um, there's no distinction in terms of how the Lord blesses people in salvation. We're all equal before Christ, equal in our status before Christ. Um, But that does not mean that God doesn't have specific roles for the sexes in terms of how they relate to one another. I mean, the same Paul who wrote Galatians 3.28 is also the one who wrote Ephesians chapter 5 in which he commands husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church and for wives to submit to their own husbands. That's right. As to the Lord. And so there, there are distinct responsibilities. And the, the, the husband has a distinct leadership role in his family to love his wife like Christ laid his life down for the church. And, and it would probably also, it also probably be a great contemporary example to, for maybe Paul, uh, if he were writing this today, maybe he would say there's no bosses, there's no employers, no employees, there's no presidents, there's That's no right. staff. We're all one in Christ. That's right. We are all one in Christ. We have all we all must approach the cross. We all must, appro- must approach him, Jesus Christ, the Savior. We must approach him on the same terms, and that is repentant sinners falling at our face, on our faces before his feet and, and asking him to save us alone. That's exactly right. And men, even though they're called to be the leaders of their homes, they're not any more saved okay. or getting any greater rewards That's in heaven right. because they're men. We're all equal That's in right. Christ, even though there are appointed leadership roles and okay. in the home and so forth. Another great uh, text on this is First uh, Peter 3, 7, where Peter says, Husbands, likewise, li- likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman. Grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, mm-hmm. so that your prayers may not be hindered. And Peter has just said, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands. And here he says to the husbands, Your wife is a fellow heir of the grace of life. So there's a quality with respect to the blessings of salvation, but there's distinction with respect to the roles within the home. That's right, and roles within society, not just within the home or within the church, but also across the world. Uh, and we hope to get that uh, to that later in the hour. Uh, right now, uh, we've got David on the line. David, you've got a question for us. Go ahead, David. Yes, what uh, verses would you use to back up the stance of once saved, always saved? Oh, my goodness. Um, They're all over the place. For me, the way that I read the New Testament is that it's just all over the New Testament. There's no getting out of it. You know, right now my fingers are just opening up to uh, Romans 8, where the Apostle Paul says this, uh, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Uh, Verse 30, Whom he predestined, these he called. Whom he called, these he justified. Whom he justified... He also glorified those that God 
destines and calls to salvation are going to be saved. And it says those who are called are justified. Those who are justified are glorified. That takes you from calling all the way to uh, the new creation. Nobody falls out of that sequence. Um, Another great text, Denny, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Paul talks about uh, the devastating effects that our sin, our transgressions and our sins had on us. And he says uh, that we were uh, enjoying all of the cravings of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the mind and of the flesh. And we were by nature children of wrath. But he raised us up. He made us alive. And he seated us in heavenly places, that's verse 6 there of Ephesians 2, to demonstrate the surpassing wealth of the grace that he has shown us in Christ Jesus. Also, uh, when as you move toward verses 9 and 10, he says, look, we are his workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works so that we uh, can walk in them, those works that God prepared beforehand for Well, what us. about John 10? That's the one that we uh, a lot of us know. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So you can't be snatched from the Father's hand, according to Jesus. And uh, that would include you can't snatch yourself out of his hand. Um, He's holding on to you and causing you to persevere in faith and in salvation. And, Mark, I would just add this just as a a sort of a pastoral exhortation. Um, You know, a lot of times today evangelicals will speak of once saved, always, always saved. Yes. But, you know, that's really only one side of a two-sided coin. Well, all coins are two-sided, aren't they? Uh, one side of a coin. And, uh, the other side of the coin is is that those who are once saved, always saved, also persevere, the Bible teaches. And um, if you're um, a true believer, you're not just going to be always saved, even if you fall off into sin. The Bible teaches that if you're a true believer, God is going to sustain you in perseverance and in salvation through the presence of his indwelling Spirit. So um, this sort of idea that you can just always be saved and not walk with Christ is not biblical. Okay. So it's not a biblical understanding. And there are plenty of, of warning passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The God who says, I promise that my co- my covenant with you is that I will bless you. Those are Those are covenantal promises that are given to people who walk in him. And uh, their New Testament warnings, uh, for instance, the book of Hebrews, that's filled with exhortations to people who sit in churches. Listen to this. If you're walking in sin, then you may not be one of God's people. You may think right. you are, but he says, look, eternal destruction is saved for you if you don't walk with me. And right. uh, so these are important doctrines. And those, those, que- those warning passages you're pointing to fall on deaf ears for a lot of people because they think, well, I've got this little prayer. I, I said remember when I was, a card I filled out when I, I was three. Yeah, my relationship with Jesus was something that happened to me when I was nine, and I've been you know, living for myself ever since. The Bible knows nothing of that. That's right. The Bible knows of you receive Christ, and if you receive him authentically and truly, you, you receive the indwelling spirit, which Paul says in Philippians, um, is God working in you to act and to will according to his good pleasure. And um, if that work of the Spirit is absent, then salvation is absent. If that work of the Spirit is there, then salvation is there. 
So it's just it's just one of those things that you don't want to. Once saved, always saved is an abused doctrine. When people point to it as only one side of the coin, and they leave the other side of the coin of perseverance out, because the Holy Spirit is causing us to persevere in faith, faithfulness to Jesus throughout our lives. Even when we stumble, the Holy Spirit is causing us to get up. All right. Well, Denny, thanks for that response. Charles, thanks for asking that very important question. And I would also point you uh, toward maybe uh, your Christian bookstore and go to somebody and, and tell them you want to know about this and you want to get a book. You want to get a book on theology and ask them what's, what's important about this doctrine. Folks, this is Mark Overstreet. Uh, I would just like to invite you to call 800-881-9270. It's Ask a Theologian Anything Day, and we'll be back right after the break. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's today's host, Mark Overstreet. Good afternoon, folks. This is Mark Overstreet standing in for Jerry Johnson. Jerry Johnson Live, we're taking Ask a Theologian Anything, and it's uh, a call-in radio talk show. You can call and ask any question you like, 800-881-9270. My good friend Denny Burke is here in the studio with me, and he is rip-roaring to respond to a question. I think right now we've got Charles on the line. Charles has got a great question about Christ dying for the sins of the world. Charles, go ahead. Yes, I grew up in the Baptist Church being taught that, that Christ died for the sins of all. Yes. And I, I'm, I'm, since you just brought up a few minutes ago predestination, it kind of plays into my question. I, I'm beginning to lean uh, uh, to, to think that that is an, an erroneous view, and I'm wondering if you could answer if Christ did die for the sins of all, did he not die for the sins of Judas? And then if that is the case, does that not indicate that his, his substitutionary death for Judas was ineffectual? Boy, that's a great question. Uh, Charles, thank you for, uh, for asking that question, and, and specifically thank you for thinking biblically and thinking about people in the Bible. Uh, you've asked a question about, and it sounds like he's referencing Denny, 1 John 2, 2, where uh, John says uh, that uh, Jesus... I died yeah. uh, not just for the sins is of a few. Is that the verse you have in mind, Charles? Uh, it sounds like maybe Charles is gone, but I, it sounded like maybe Ch- uh, Charles uh, was asking about Christ dying for the sins of the world, and he's wrestling with this issue of predestination. First of all, Charles, I just want to say that predestination is a biblical word, and so whatever you think about it, the word appears in the Bible. Now, it doesn't appear in English, it, the, the Greek word, uh, appears in the New Testament, and it appears, and so we have to define it somehow. So the question is, how do we deal with that versus, for instance, yeah. Denny, this question about uh, Judas. Did Jesus' sure. death not actually work? Did it break sure. for Judas? Yeah, and, and it's important. That's a great point that you just made, Mark, because a lot of people say, <laughs> I'll hear somebody from time to time say, I don't believe in predestination. And I'll say, well, that's a real problem because that word comes from the Bible. That's you right. Know, that's right. You know, you might want to say something like, I don't believe the same thing about predestination that you believe. That's right. Um, but if you say, I don't believe in predestination, you're saying, I don't believe in the Bible. Or I don't believe that, I don't have the same view of predestination that my uncle John has. Yeah, that's right. 
And, and a while ago when I said that word, I was just reading Romans eight twenty nine. So um, just it, it's always important to remember it's a Bible word. The question is, is what does the Bible mean by it when it teaches it? And um, of course, you know, my view is uh, Romans eight twenty nine. For instance, that word predestination comes from a Greek word pro horizo. It's where we get our word horizon from. Uh, it's, it's like marking out a boundary, and um, in this case, it's marking out or or. Uh, uh, distinguishing a group, as it were, determining a boundary beforehand. And, and God has sort of marked out who will be his beforehand. And where you'll see theologians and uh, readers of the Bible disagree is, is on what basis does he make that predetermination as to who will be saved? Some people say, well, God looked down through the corridors of time and he knew who would, by their own free will, choose him. And therefore, he predetermined based on his foreknowledge of their choice. Others will say, no, his predestination, his um, choosing beforehand who will be his, is not based on anything he sees in a person, um, either in the future or whatever. It's based totally on his sovereign and goodwill. I, I've, I fall in the latter category in terms of what my view is. Um, there are good Christians who disagree with me on that. And uh, who who wouldn't hold that same point of view? But you know, best I can understand what the scriptures are teaching. I think it's the latter, that God is out of His love. Um, as a matter of fact, Ephesians one says, "In love He predestined us mm-hmm. according to the kind intention of His will." Ephesians one four says. So I believe the motive is love, the very wisdom of God, and the deep and hidden purposes of God that he would choose a people for himself. Now, the question is, is did Christ die for the sins of the world? You have verses like First um, John 2, 2, that says that he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Mm-hmm. You, you've got, uh, you know, in John's writings especially, all these references to Christ loving the world and in this place, he's a propitiation or a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the world. That's right. And so the question becomes, well, how in the world can he die for the world and pay for their sins, and yet some people still go to hell? That's right. And because um, you look around, you know, Mark, you know, not everybody goes to heaven. That's right. Um, and so the question becomes, well, if Christ is dying for the sins of the world, then why do people go to hell? And there's two different uh, sort of approaches on this. Some people say, well, um, he um here in First John two two, perhaps world um, is not referring to world in the way that you and I mean it, as in perhaps, the entire world, but as in um, like the world of Jew, of Gentiles. Okay, you know, John as a Jew is saying, "I'm a Jew. Christ died for us, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the world, the the Gentile world." So, and so, some people think, well, he he dies for um, the elect among the Gentiles. Other people would say. Well, no, that's not necessarily the case. It means he dies for everyone equally. And then the question becomes, well, if he dies for everyone equally, then why does anyone have to go to hell for their sins? And the answer is usually, well, you have to receive Christ. But then the question is, well, if you've received Christ, if you haven't received Christ, but Christ died for your sins, why is there still a penalty yet for you to pay? So it's a thorny theological issue. I don't think it's dispute is over the extent of the atonement which we're not going to be able to work out here. Not in the six uh, minutes left in this segment, at that's least. That's exactly right. But uh, those are some of the directions that you can read on. But good Christians disagree on this, and it's not something that uh, 
um, you know, we're going to split the church over right now. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, we've got more folks waiting on the line, so let's go ahead and go uh, back to the lines. We've got Brian from Fort Worth. Brian, you've got a comment for us. Go ahead. Yes, sir. I had a quick comment on your uh, on the view of tongues. Okay, okay. go ahead. Um, I noticed that you said that it was for the proclamation of the gospel, um, but when I see it in Acts 19 and Acts 10, each time it's the new converts who are speaking in tongues and not the uh, apostles who are telling them about the gospel. So I notice every time that a person, or in those two instances, Acts 10 19, that they do um, receive the Holy Ghost, it's the new converts who speak in tongues and not the apostles. So um, I noticed that, and also I noticed that in, I think it's First Corinthians chapter number uh, 14, that Paul said not to speak in tongues unless you have an interpreter. Yeah. Um, but I noticed also in Acts there is no interpreter uh, with these new converts who are speaking in tongues. So my kind of viewpoint on that, I'd like your comments on it as well, is that when they speak in tongues, it seems to be that that's the evidence of them receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. Because in Acts 19, the apostles said, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they didn't know what he was talking about. So the apostle approached them some more, found that they were baptized by John the Baptist, and they rebaptized him. And after they did that, the Bible says that they, uh, verse 6, Paul laid his hands on them, they spoke in tongues and prophesied. So I'd like your, your take on uh, what you see about that. Well, I think you're um, exactly right that the tongues appear in those different chapters in the book of Acts. And I said a while ago that the content of what's being spoken, it's really difficult to know exactly what it was that was being spoken um, because it doesn't ever give you exactly what was being said. All we have is this word in Acts chapter 2 in uh, verse 11. We hear them speaking in our own tongues, speaking of the mighty deeds of of God. So I said that tongues were for proclamation of a message because people were hearing the mighty deeds of God in their own language. And then, of course, in Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 says, um, the one who um, speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for in the Spirit he speaks mysteries, or by the Holy Spirit he speaks mysteries. And, of course, in Paul's way of thinking, a mystery is not something that is uh, gibberish or babble. Um, Paul refers to the word of the cross as a mystery. The mystery, in Paul's thinking, is something that was previously hidden but now is disclosed in the gospel. So to speak mysteries in a tongue would mean to speak um, gospel kinds of content, (laughs) gospel kinds of words in an unknown tongue. So, um, you know, I think, you know, the, the caller, I don't know if he's still on the line or not, but, yeah, oh, yeah, I, I think that, you know, whereas a lot of people see the gift of tongues in Acts as something that is different from the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, I see there's lots of reasons to see those actually as the same gift. So that in, in 1 Corinthians 14, um, it's still a revelatory gift. It's All not right. just a confirming gift, as it were. Does that make sense? Right. Can I read one scripture real quick? And, uh, go ahead. First, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, and then we'll move on. Okay. In uh, Acts 10, it says, uh, While Peter God spoke these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And oh, yeah, yeah. Circumc- I'm sorry? Yeah. I, oh, it, it I, says, uh, And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished 
as many as came with Peter, because on the Gentiles also was put out the gift of the Holy Ghost. In verse 46, it says, For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. So it would lead me to believe that the way they knew they received the Holy Ghost is because they heard them speak in an unknown language. Yeah, and which uh, chapter were you reading from? That's it's Acts 10. Acts 10, chapter Yeah, with three, Cornelius. With Cornelius, uh, because Peter had to be convinced that the Gentiles were receiving the Holy Spirit just as the Jews did. And you know, at the end of that section, um, Peter sees this confirming sign that God is going to the Gentiles. That's the purpose, um, to show that they were receiving the Spirit, just like the Jews did in Acts 2. So um, anyway, that's kind of where I am on that. I know we've got a break coming up here, so Mark, let me throw it back to you. Well, uh, listen, thank you so much, Brian, for your question, and really appreciate the way you're exploring the Scriptures. We always want to encourage people to go to the Scriptures and seek their answers from the Bible. This is God's Word. Folks, uh, this is Mark Overstreet in the studio with Denny Burke. Call us 800-881-9270 with your questions. We'll be back right after the break. If you're looking for a college experience that is distinctively Christian, come to Criswell College. Contact us today for information about the upcoming term. Criswell College places a strong emphasis on the Word of God, a Christian worldview, and being an effective witness to a world that needs Jesus Christ. Criswell College is totally committed to the Bible as the authoritative, inspired, and inerrant Word of God to ensure that every student receives a solid biblical and doctrinal foundation. Our worldview approach to ministry prepares every Criswell College student to view each academic discipline through a Christian frame of reference and to engage our culture and the world of ideas from a Christian perspective. Along with this word and worldview emphasis, each Criswell College student gets hands-on ministry training in missions and evangelism to be an effective witness through mission trips at home and abroad. Contact Criswell College today for information about the upcoming term. Call 1-800-899-0012 or on the web go to criswell.edu. That's chriswell.edu. You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now here's today's host, Mark Overstreet. All right, folks, good afternoon. This is Mark Overstreet. It's the 5 o'clock drive time Friday afternoon, heading out to the ball game. I am in the studio with Dr. Denny Burke, professor of New Testament, Criswell College. We're taking your calls, taking your questions, and giving you biblical answers. We've got folks waiting on the line, Denny, so we need to get straight to George. George, you're calling in from Plano. Give us your question. You know, I'm, I'm a 48-year-old Christian, and I, for a long time, held the belief that, you know, if you're Christian in a temple of the Holy Spirit, that, that you know, you really couldn't be oppressed, and I'm certainly not saying possessed by Satan, but oppressed by, you know, forces of evil, and I've, as I've gotten older, it just seems to be counter, so I really dug into Scripture and looked at that, and I'd love to hear your philosophy, because I know there's, it's kind of split in Christendom that, you know, if you're Christian, you know, there's the flesh, but you can't be really certainly possessed, or even maybe oppressed by by Satan and his demons, and then there's those that say, hey, you got to have deliverance and those type of things, and because of the flesh and sin, I just like to get get your get your thoughts on that uh, scripturally. George, did you have any particular text in mind of the Bible uh, that would support either one of those philosophies? Yeah, something that's you know peaking this question. Um, well, you know, I've actually been reading. I've been reading a lot of books. Let's see, scripturally, I, I just I've been going through the Gospels and seeing what Jesus was doing, and 
it just seems like every, you know, over and over again, it was about throwing out demons. And, and basically, you know, the, my question is, is he said, look, to those who believe in me, I can't remember, I think it was in John at, at the end, my, those who believe in me will be, you know, throwing out demons and healing the sick and, and sure. uh, uh, preaching the gospel. Well, you All know, in, in the gospels, though, you know, in the gospels, that none of the people that were delivered were ever spoken of as being redeemed before they were delivered. From, they were God's children, though, right? Under the covenant of circumcision and such, right? Oh, okay. Well, see, well, see, that's the difference because not everyone in Israel was necessarily a born again person. That's why Jesus would say to Nicodemus, you know, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. So, and, so, you know, and that's, that's exactly what you just laid out is exactly why there's a split in thinking on that, right? Exactly, but you know, for all the exorcisms that you see in the New Testament, you know, I'm thinking of Mark five. You know, when Jesus cast the demon legion out of yeah. the, the Gerasene demoniac, um, you don't have any indication before that that this person was someone who had already had the indwelling spirit inside of them, or was a regenerate person, or a born again person. Um, so it's sort of an argument or an inference uh, from silence argument for silence or maybe some kind of an inference based on something else to say that saved people sometimes get possessed in the sense that you see in the Gospels. Uh, There's no clear indication of that that you could ever point to in the Scripture. Now, that's not to say that there can't be um, some kind of uh, evil influence by an evil spirit or an evil oppression by an evil spirit, but that's that's I think that's different than the instances of possession that you see in the new testament one of the things george that i think can i just add one other thing though but on yeah go ahead from uh, arguing from silence and one of the problems i have with it if that's the case that you're really you know and that was the case where they weren't born again believers and and therefore you know that satan had the ability to have control in these in the particular cases but if that's the case and knowing what jesus said about well they skip to arid places and they'll come back and bring 20 of their friends well, as a Christian, why would we want to exercise anyone? Because you don't have the guarantee that Christ is going to come in and fill that, fill that uh, temple. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, it's different with different stories in the New Testament. But I'm not saying that every exorcism results in uh, a redemption of that person um, spiritually or an immediate recognition. Right. This is Jesus as the Messiah, and now they've inherited eternal life, just as Jesus said. I mean, I think the point that Jesus was making is is that it, unless there is a, a greater power that takes residence up in that person, then, yeah, that person's open again. So they have to receive Christ, not just uh, you know freedom from this um, Demon, uh, the demon possession. One of the things, George, that I think uh, that I hear behind your question is, uh, first of all, the affirmation that there is a real spirit world. Uh, we live in uh, really postmodern 21st century America, Denny, and a lot of people just hear this demon talk or Satan talk, and they think, boy, this is silly. You know, we, we Because we've become materialist, a lot of Christians have uh, forgotten that there's a very powerful, behind the curtain of our eyesight, there is a very powerful biblical view of the world uh, that uh, that is uh, engaging with demons and with Satan and the powers of the enemy. And, uh, George, I know that behind your questions also, uh, the, the wonder, the concern about uh, their power, uh, their powerful and the disastrous effects of having as a father 
uh, so- someone who worships uh, not the Lord, but who gives themselves over to the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. They're living and walking according to the flesh. And uh, the Bible says that their father is Satan, the devil. And uh, that oppression or possession from our perspective is still very a very remarkable event in Scripture that you either worship Christ and you will serve the living God or you worship the devil and you serve your flesh. And so my encouragement to anyone who feels like they're dealing with this kind of an issue is to seek Bible counsel, to seek a man of God, to seek... Someone who knows their Bible and to seek Jesus himself, who is the Lord of everything, because Jesus is the Lord of of our lives. He's the Lord of this creation, and he's the Lord of everything, including the spirit of Beelzebub, which we should fear as humans. But as long as we submit our bend our knees and submit our lives to Christ, then we will find ourselves uh, in him, and he will find them running from him, as he, just as he did in Scripture. So You wrap that up as good as anybody ever could. You had to do this professionally. That well, George, uh, I really appreciate that. Thank you for calling in today. We really appreciate the interaction here. Uh, folks, we've got other callers waiting on the line. Uh, we've got uh, Jim. Jim, you've called in. Uh, what's your question today? Thanks for calling Jerry Johnson Live. Thanks. Uh, well, it was based actually on your, your admonition to, for people to search the Scriptures, and a Google search of the phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved, will reveal that there are plenty of ideas about who this person was, ranging anywhere from one guy wrote an 800-page book saying this was Thomas. Um, of course, tradition says it's John. Uh, some people think it's Mary Magdalene, but, there's, uh, but neither of those ideas, by the way. John nor Mag- Mary Magdalene has a single verse that would justify teaching those, that idea. I know it's, it's uh, uh, common to parrot tradition and point to non-Bible sources on this, but there's not a single verse that would justify the John idea. Jim, uh, thanks. That's a great question. And let me just uh, answer as quick as I can in the last minute. Actually, uh, the, there is evidence that it was John the Apostle because the writer of the book is the one who leaned on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper, Supper in John chapter 13, verses 23 to 24. And uh, we know that there were only 12 people who were at the Supper and then 11 after Judas leaves. And when you look, and that disciple is the disciple whom Jesus loved, the end of John in chapter 21 in verse 24 it says this is the disciple who bears witness of these things and who wrote these things we know that his witness is true John was there at the last supper he's the one who uh, was leaning against Jesus breast I think it was John the apostle that's a great response Denny well thanks a lot uh, callers for your interaction today really an enjoyable ask a theologian anything day this is Mark Overstreet in the studio with Denny Burke have a great weekend God bless you and go to church on Sunday You've been listening to Jerry Johnson Live, a Christian worldview radio show. Join Dr. Jerry Johnson, president of Criswell College and Criswell Communications, Monday through Friday at 5 p.m. for an hour of relevant discussion of news and culture from a Christian perspective.